I think the message of James's grizzling, actually, Keith, was with God the milk never runs out. <laughs> but sadly, sadly with man the milk does run out and you cry incessantly throughout the rest of the service. Um, morning, nice to see you. I have no idea whether what I say follows what's come before in the worship because I've not been in it for most of the time. But never mind, I should take a wild punt. Hope we're okay. Um, wanted to look a bit this morning at the, at the Great Commission, which is an often preached passage. And it's on that sort of top five list, isn't it? If you go to, particularly if you go to a good conference, a good charismatic conference, there are sort of a top five passages that you get. People like Elijah on Mount Carmel, don't they? That comes up a lot. They like, me and Keith have discussed that at length before. And the Great Commission is there, and it's often used as a way of making a point. It's often used that the point of a sermon is that you should get on and do some evangelism, for goodness sake. And then this passage is used to support that message. And... Um, it's actually quite a backwards way of using the Bible. A better way of using any bit of the Bible is to say, what does this actually say? What is the writer saying? Who is he saying it to? How is that relevant for us now? What's the background to this? So, I've tried to have another look at it, really, and try and have a look at it in a way that isn't arriving with an agenda. But I wanted to have a little dig and see what's really there, and see what, see what Matthew is trying to tell us about this encounter with Jesus. See what it is that was so important that Matthew wrote it down. And see what it is that's so important that 2,000 years later we're still talking about it. Um, I've, never heard, I've actually, as to my knowledge, never heard this message preached before without shouting being involved. Um, I shall, I shall um, make my effort not to shout. And I don't have a mass load of conclusions about it. But I have some questions and I have some, some reflections about it. We did this with the, with the youth last night. We looked at a passage from the Bible and we just sort of went through it and just said, what's odd in this? What needs a bit more thought? So all I've really got is about six things that need a bit more thought. And I've got a few reflections of my own about what I've come to as I've given them a bit more thought. But my encouragement to you really is to give it a bit more thought yourself. Because there's, there's questions which really you need to make work for you. And I can't stand here and do four points about it that all start with the same letter and it be relevant to everyone. So you need to make them work for you. I'm trusting you to use your brain. Um, but that's kind of what the Bible's like, isn't it? There's two... There's two elements to any Bible study. There's what the writer's saying, what the Word says, but there's also you and your circumstances and your life and where it's at for you. And as those two things come together, you get some conclusions that are yours. And I would encourage you to try and stick those two bits together. And I'm not going to try and second-guess you. And I'm not going to try and get some really twee, neat points that will work for everyone. Because if we've really got into this passage, I think it will probably be impossible. So, we'll go with that. Um, shall we start by reading it? We're going to do the Matthew version, that's okay. Versions of it crop up in Mark as well. 
Possibly Luke, if I remember rightly. But we'll do the we'll do the Matthew version. Matthew twenty-eight, verse sixteen. I'll give you a moment. I'm going to read for New Living, for which I apologise. But I do the I do the New Living. We there? Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's famous words, isn't it? It's easy to almost not listen. Um, but let's see if we can find some, something fresh in them. Let's see if we can dig and find something we've not seen before. Let's give it some context. Let's go back a bit. We are in the post-resurrection world. Jesus is back. But, I'm not about to doubt the physical resurrection of Christ, don't worry. But for the disciples, he's not like he was before. He is not with them all the time. He's, they're having moments with him and then he's going. And they're difficult, weird moments. Sometimes I don't even recognise it's him for a while. So it's a different world they're in to the world they were in before the crucifixion. Jesus is with them and present and physically alive. But he's not like he used to be. And they're having to adjust. Um, Matthew tells this to us as if it's the first meeting after the, after the resurrection. We're not sure, because other writers, other Gospels imply that stuff like the road to Emmaus and the upper room where Thomas doubts may have happened earlier because they were set closer to Jerusalem. We're not sure. It doesn't really matter, to be honest. But we have an early meeting with the disciples. Where are we? We're back in Galilee, which for me feels significant. Because Galilee's home base. Galilee's where it started for them. Galilee's where most of the stories of Jesus' ministry were played out. This is a land which for the disciples is littered with memories. As they stood on the mountain, they may have looked out and seen places that made them go, do you remember? On the walk to the mountain, they may have been through places that were laced with memories. This is, a, this is not a wilderness in the middle of nowhere. This is a known place in a known area where they've been with Jesus. And so it, it comes laced with meaning. We're not in the middle of nowhere. So that's, that's your background. That's how they got there. Um, and I've got about... How many have I got? Let me count them. I've got six things that are thoughts out of this text. A lot of them came from listening to a lecturer on my course who's got a PhD in this stuff, doing his talk. And they're just things he gave about, about 15 points. But these are just a few of them that struck me. And you may see others. If you find others, have a think about them yourself. But they're things you might like to think about. Point one that I'd never spotted before 
is the very first verse of it describes them, says, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee. Never struck me that before. But they're missing someone. And it's funny, isn't it? That later on in the Bible, Judas becomes a bit of a sort of pantomime villain. And it's easy to look back on him as a thoroughly evil man. But at this point, they're missing a friend. And they're missing Jesus, but they're also missing Judas. And there's a lot of emotion and pain with that. I assume, and I've written in my notes that Judas must have broken their hearts. He was their friend. He was one of them. You know, when Jesus sends them out in pairs, and they go, they go under Jesus' authority as pair, in pairs, and they see miracles, and they drive out demons, and they come back, and they tell stories of what they saw. One of them went with Judas. One of them's adventure with God, adventure of being like Jesus under his authority. One of them had their adventure with Judas. And anyone who's been on an adventure with someone knows that that, that bonds you and you're close. And they must be hurting for the loss of Judas. They must be hurting for the loss of Judas. Some of them, I gather, if someone kills themselves... I've, I've never been close to someone who killed themselves, but the stuff you read says it's very... The, the, the thoughts that people who are close have are thoughts like, I could have helped them. Why didn't they talk to me? I could have stopped them. So perhaps the disciples are having that conversation as they go to meet Jesus as an 11, not as a 12. And these are uncomfortable thoughts, aren't they? we're used to this story and it's all about Jesus shouting go but it's a go that comes out of a difficult place for these disciples it's worth thinking some more about how that dynamic works a good Bible study actually a good (laughs) debate to have is if Judas hadn't killed himself what would Jesus have done think that one through we won't do it now but they're an, they're an 11, not a 12. They're a group who are missing someone. And they are probably a group who are hurting from the loss of the one. He's not yet the panto villain. They meet Jesus and they worship. And again, it's, it's different how it used to be. When you meet the disciples around Jesus, even at the Last Supper, they're still arguing over who gets to sit nearest. They're still seeing Jesus in a pretty earthly form where everyone's arguing to get close to him. One of the things I do because of my job supporting children's workers is you get to read the passages regularly about Jesus bringing a child into people's midst. And he normally does that in response to the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. He usually uses a child to go, they are. But um, there's none of that. It's over, isn't it? It's over. And the new response to Jesus is to worship. It's a correct response, of course. But their relationship to Jesus has changed. It's no longer, hey, how are you doing? And now the response to meeting Jesus is to worship. And that, of course, is the response in our lives. As Jesus comes and becomes part of our lives, the primary response with our lives is to worship. But that would be my reflection on it. I'll leave you to to think. But there's an interesting thing, isn't there, that it says, I'm on to point three already, I'm fine. 
When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Hmm. Now this is tricky, isn't it? This is tricky, that they're worshipping and they're doubting. Is Jesus troubled by that? We don't know. He doesn't seem to be. He doesn't seem to be troubled by them having doubts. And we, of course, meet people in the Gospels who have doubts, who Jesus seems okay with. You remember his grace towards Thomas, who possibly, jokingly, says, if I can put my hand in his side, I'll believe, only to realise he said this in the presence of Jesus. Um, and the guy who, who sees Jesus says, I'll only believe, and his response is, I want to believe, help me with my unbelief. Jesus didn't send him away. I would suggest, my reflections now, that there's a difference between the cynical unbelief of a Pharisee and the genuine doubt of someone who has seen Jesus and wants to believe, but is finding it hard. And in that group too, there's a lot of grace. A lot of grace from Jesus. They're not told off. They're allowed to struggle with it. They're allowed to find it okay. If you doubt sometimes, God will not kick you out for it. Jesus doesn't kick any of these 12 out for it. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it doesn't add up. Sometimes things happen, just as has happened for these 12, that mean that things that used to be certain don't seem so certain for a while. And it takes some time for them to come back to being certain. Remember that of the 11 we've got here, 10 were killed for their faith. So they did come out the other side and got to a place of pretty firm faith. But in this moment that some are doubting, and you know that's okay. It's okay. And when it's tough, sometimes you will, and it's okay. I don't know how you balance this as some of you will be thinking, with Paul saying we should take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. I don't really know how those two things hang together. But I do know that here are some people who are seeing Jesus stood in front of them and are struggling to believe what they're seeing. And it seems to be okay. It must have been very odd. We have to remember that we look at it 2,000 years later and have been told from you know, I've been told from in the womb that Jesus came back to life. So after a while it seems that, oh, okay. But these people were experiencing it for the first time. They had a precedent. They watched the whole Lazarus situation unfold. But they're having to come to terms with this. They're having to learn how to handle this situation. And I'm sure, I'm sure we can t- find times in our journey, times in our life, when it's felt like that that the books won't help us, the study guides won't help us, the friends who offer to pray can't help us because we feel like we're somewhere where no one's been before. And that's where these disciples were. And the consequence was doubt. And the consequence from Jesus was grace and acceptance. It's a beautiful thing, actually. And it's a beautiful thing that my... my my study Bible, it always seems to be written by people who have amazing spiritual lives, says that it's significant for them that despite doubt, this commission comes out of worship. 
I would say the opposite is also true. That despite worship, this commission comes out of doubt. That these are real people suffering and, and going through real emotions. And Jesus is still able to put into them the mission for the church till his return. This is where Jesus consoles people who are in worship, but people who are in doubt. Because they're real people. And it's hard for them. And if we were there, it would be just as hard for us. Because these are people who aren't looking back at the Bible and seeing it all make sense. These are people who are still, these are still people 30 years from it being written down. This is hard. Anyway, so I'm going to move on. I could talk about that for a long time. Because I think there's a lot there. And it's something which we don't always deal with well. I think the, the charismatic in us wants things to be open to be certain and solid and we want to be able to believe stuff because it's true and sometimes that won't work and actually part of having a mature faith is going through there and coming out the other side with a faith which is stronger and deeper and more real because it's been through fire let's go on to the next point go into all the world he says this is when they get shouty isn't it when you're at the convention, this is when it gets shouty. I heard a sermon by, I won't name, but his whole sermon was based on go. What part of the word go don't you understand? Well, the actual question was, what part of the word go do you don't understand? Because Jesus isn't saying that. He's not using that go. The go, we are, I hate it when you have to fall into Greek, but we're going to fall into Greek. When Jesus is saying go, he's not using the go you would use to start a race. It's a different word for that. You wouldn't start a race with this go. If you started the race with this go, people would, would sort of look at you and go, are we, are we going? Because he's using the go that's best translated as as you go. In that way that Keith, I use Keith as my own example. Keith, as we know, has a happy marriage with Tabar. And one thing Keith would never do of an evening is say, go and make me a cup of tea. You don't do that, do you? But anyone who's been married for any length of time knows the moment that person, Alec, is being outed at the front row. <laughs> but certainly in, in the average relationship, the moment one of you, the moment one of you twitches, the other one is in with, oh, are you going? If you're going, you couldn't just... <laughs> It's how it works, isn't it? You would, never, you would never consent to just going, get on and do it. But you would just go, oh, <laughs> while you're up, while you're up, could you just... And strangely, this is, this is the go that Jesus uses. It's a, go that's, it's a go that says, as you're going, would you do this? It's not... It's, I've written this down, so I quite like... It's not drop everything and do it. It's actually, in everything, do it. In everything that you're doing, do it. It's not drop everything. We're not launching a missionary campaign. We are saying that in everything you're already doing, in everything your life adds up to, in every activity in your life, part of that now is to make disciples. It's not stop everything and do it. It's in everything that you're doing. Do it. Do you see the difference? It's, a, it's the classic 
it's the classic Bible command that if you really dig it in, normally what you find is there's no pressure and coercion anymore, but it's much bigger than you thought. I don't know how the Bible does that, but it does it a lot, doesn't it? That you can remove. It's like the, the fabulous thing that you have to remember that we don't convert people. We don't save people. We don't just not our ministry. The Holy Spirit does that. God does that. Jesus, that's their job. So there's no pressure on us to say, I haven't converted five people this week. But we're so involved in that ministry that there's a huge, a huge emphasis on us to be involved. But there's no pressure to, to generate converts. And in this one, there's no pressure that says, if you haven't given up work to be, a, to be an evangelist, there's no pressure that says, if you haven't preached the gospel 17 times in the last week, there's no failure in having not done that. Because there's no pressure. But it's to say, in all that you do, live a life which is a discipling influence to other people. It's be salt, it's be light. Now, how are we doing for time? We're okay. I found it very difficult. To, I wished I could now bring you three useful points about this. But I, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm going to keep going and I might have to let you talk to the person next to you see what you make, make of it. Um, that's your cue to move seats if you need to. Um, because the other point which I've already alluded to is that Jesus says go and disciple, not go and convert. It says in most of our translations, it says go make disciples. I gather that a more accurate translation would be go and disciple all nations. I gather. Um, I bet Alex Bible says that. Pretty infallible. But how do you, this is the question that you need to reflect on, because I can't answer this, because I don't live your life, I don't live in your world. How do you live a life which disciples people? How do you live a life that shows people God? And the only reflection that I could bring with it is I tried to think about what those disciples would think in that moment. And it's worth reflecting on, because a lot of what we now say is the gospel message, is Paul, isn't it? It's stuff out of Romans, it's a Roman road, Roman road four-point gospel, all that stuff. But of course, they haven't got any of that. They've never met Paul. They're going to meet Paul soon, and they're going to wish they hadn't, frankly, for a while. <laughs> Paul is looming on the horizon, and not in a good way. But what have they seen of Jesus? What have they seen of him? What have they learnt from him? that looks like discipleship the Jesus way. Because there are no four-point gospels yet. There's no tracts. There's no nice books. The five irrefutable rules of Christian discipleship has not yet been written. But they've seen Jesus live and they've learned at the feet of a master. And they've possibly seen it in its purest form because we have this little bit in the middle of our Bible, don't we, where we have the first heart, we're in the first section up till the end of the Old Testament, is people writing under inspiration, reflecting on God. And then you have this bit in the middle, and then we go back to that afterwards. Then we have this bit in the middle that's incredibly pure, because it's people describing what they saw of God. And it's eyewitness saying, God came and he lived among us, and it looked like this. And when Jesus opens his mouth and speaks, it's different, isn't it? 
it's not a prophecy to weigh, it's God speaking in human form. And so they actually have an incredibly pure reference. They're looking at Christ, God himself. And what did he do? He went about and loved people. He went to the people that no one would go to and put his arm around them. He showed extraordinary grace to people who didn't deserve it. And so perhaps, perhaps, there's more to this than knowing my four-point gospel off by heart. Maybe a life of disciples is a life that's so laced with love that people understand God's love for the way that I treat them. It's another one of those ones isn't it, where it makes you wish you could just learn your four-point gospel. <laughs> because suddenly we've lost the pressure of, I must preach the gospel every moment, but we've gained this bigger commission of go and represent Christ's love wherever you go. Um, how are we doing? I don't know what time I... What, is it half past I'm aiming for? Or is it a bit early? Do you want to have five minutes? Turn to the person next to you and just reflect on how, in your life, you can be someone who makes who, who disciples. Not someone who makes disciples, someone who disciples. Is that okay? Can you do that? Five minutes? Just to, You're not going to get a conclusion in five minutes. But you might just get started. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's, um, let's keep going, shall we? If anyone's reached a tidy conclusion, well done. Startling stuff. Oh, if, to be honest, let's be, for those of us who haven't, which is most of us, if you've reached a tidy conclusion, I would suggest you need to go deeper. <laughs> there's, probably, there's probably a lot more there. <laughs> you've got the tidy conclusion. And of course... I've been guilty, of course, of that with this verse, that you really could do a three-week Bible study on this. There's all kinds of deep stuff I've left out that you might want to dig at some other time. I'm sure there's a great significance in the fact that Jesus begins this talk with, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's a big statement to make about yourself. And there must be some reason he has to say that before he can commission people, because there's a therefore and so that all that he goes on to say comes out of all authority in heaven and earth. So there's a, there's a question. I'm not going to talk about it now because I don't want to put too much in. But there's a, there's a thought. There's loads in what he says about what that discipleship would look like. Worth a dig. There's loads more there. I don't want you to think that this is the definitive word in this passage. Please do dig again. But this is kind of what Bible study looks like, isn't it? Have a dig. Have another dig. Keep going. Don't worry, don't worry if you don't get that verse. 
that jumps out, that's God's word for you today. But I would say, thank goodness. Because that's a very lazy way of using the Bible. Dig in it. Dig in it. This book's not about you, it's about God. It's there to, for we can understand God. And we understand ourselves by understanding God. So it is about us in that way, but this book will help you understand God and Jesus. So it's going to take some time. So really don't worry if the big verse doesn't jump out that you can stick to the fridge and base your life around. It probably won't. And if it, it, and if it doesn't, then brilliant. Because now you've got to really get into it. Now you've got to really dig. Now you've got to really chew it. You've really got to ask those questions. What's the writer saying? I find it quite helpful, I know it sounds like heretical, to think of this book as being written by a guy called Matthew. And he's writing it so that I can find out about Jesus. I find it quite a handy question for me to ask. Why did Matthew put that in? When he collected all his evidence, when he sat down for hours with Peter and talked through what he'd seen, what was it about that bit that made Matthew go, yeah, that bit's got to go in? What was it? I mean, John in his gospel actually says at the end, there's loads more I could have said, but I didn't have time. So with John, you can really play that game. You really go, why is it that John chose these bits? Why did he give me these bits? Why did John think this was so important? These lost parables, why are they all together? Did Jesus sit there and go, I'm doing lost today? I don't know. We don't know whether he did do lost parables all at once or whether the gospel writer thought, I'm going to put these all together because I want to make a point. I want people to see what Jesus thought about lost stuff. So I'm going to lump them all together. So it, I don't know, but it's a good debate to have. And I think it quite helps sometimes. So think about, what, think about the writer. Not always treat it as if it's God speaking to you in the room. I hope I'm not being heretical saying that. I might, we can have an argument if we need to. Um, what have I got? Last point. Last point and then I'll finish. And we might, you've got some time if you need to talk some more. And we've got some more groups and stuff that we can talk about this. Um, Jesus, is, Jesus finishes. And in, you know, it's, it's, it's where Matthew decides, you know, it's useful, isn't it? It's where Matthew says, we have enough story now. I've explained Jesus as much as I need to. You have everything you need. Last gambit on Jesus. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I've heard someone preach this, that this is a conditional clause, because it's lumped after the Great Commission. What do you reckon? Rubbish. Why is it rubbish? Yeah, there's no therefore. If you want, if you, need a, you need to link it, don't you? Jesus, as far as we know, did not link these two things. He did not say, go into the world and make all disciples. As you're going, go into the world and make all disciples. And if you do that, I'll come with you. He hasn't said that. It's not there. That's a jump by someone trying to put a hell of a lot of pressure on you, saying that Jesus will only be your mate if you follow his commands. Good grief. Shut up, you idiot. That's not the gospel. Jesus is with you, full stop. It is a commitment through good, through bad, through richer, through poorer, till you die. No, to the very end of time. That is, that is where the full stop is in this sentence. 
the very end of the age. When time finishes, this can finish. But until then, Jesus is with you wherever you go. Whatever your week looks like, Jesus is there with you. He will not go anywhere. We do this a lot in our worship where we say we're going to draw near to God. But I'll tell you this. In our worship, God does not draw near to us. Why? Because you couldn't get any closer. How does the God who's in you, that's joined with you, get any closer? All we do when we worship is we, is we open ourselves up to it and we acknowledge it and we enjoy it. We don't get any closer to us. He's not a geographical God. He doesn't live in this room for us. We're not in the Old Testament. He comes with us because he's promised wherever we go, whatever we do, however it is, till the very end of the age, he comes with us. I'm going to stop there. It's worth thinking about that. It's worth dwelling on that. Because I bet you there will be times in your life and that might be all you've got left. <laughs> so hold on to it. We're done. I've run out of things to say.